Thank you, brother, for the words of welcome. I get this mask off me. I'll be able to breathe more easily. It's good to be here this morning and to fellowship with you, to see a good number out of the house of God and not, for, not forgetting, of course, those who are in the overflow. Now, I have a northern accent. I know your pastor has a northern accent, and I hope you're used to that accent by now. He's from the north coast, which is further up. I'm more mid-range, uh, so it might be slightly more mellow. But I will try to speak slowly, and if you can listen fast, we'll be okay, and we'll get through the service Now, the internet said that the service is from 11 to 12. I'm not sure if that means I have to stop at 12, that the lights go out and the doors start closing and everything shuts down at 12. Uh, But I will try to be done by 12. You'll certainly have your lunch over in good time. But it is lovely to be here, and especially in this historic building, and to meet and to fellowship with you, as your brother said, It is in less than ideal circumstances with the pandemic. Uh, But nonetheless, the word of God goes forth. The Church of Christ continues, and it is a blessing to be here. There was a pastor here in the past. Some of you most likely would remember him, Robert Dunlop. Uh, He was here for 40 years, I believe. I had a little walk around the graveyard, and and I saw his his grave, Um, Robert Dunlop. I was doing some research on another subject and I saw a number of times his name cropping up in newspapers. Uh, He seemed to be quite a vocal pastor and innovative. I think he had a a bus. Uh, So he was innovative in his evangelism. And I think more and more, we as Christians living in an increasingly secular society need to be innovative in our evangelism And it was good to see some of the history, uh, not only of the building, but of previous pastors who have ministered the word of God in this place. We're turning, please, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I find it very helpful sometimes to go back to the beginning uh, to get a big, broad picture I think sometimes as Christians we get cluttered up in the details uh, and we, we, we miss the big picture. And that goes for a lot of different subjects. Uh, number one, who God is, the nature of God, uh, who man is and where we are as humanity and how man interacts with God, how man interacts with the world, how man interacts with Uh, the devil. All of these subjects, uh, as we go through Scripture and as we've progressed now over thousands of years of human history, uh, we get sometimes caught up in the details and the minutiae of of these aspects of life. But I want us today to go back to the beginning. Genesis is the book of beginning. And here we have in Genesis chapter 3 the beginning of sin, the beginning of sin in humanity, the beginning of God's work as a gracious God towards sinners. And so the subject today, if you take notes, is God's response 
to a rebellious creation. God's response to a rebellious creation. How did God respond to his creation that had rebelled? Genesis chapter 3, we're going to read the entire chapter. I'm reading from the ESV. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it, had, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and that you knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the woman said, and to the woman he said rather, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it were you taken for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat 
and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Amen. We trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Let's bow, please, just for a moment's prayer as we come to consider this passage together. Our Father and our great God in heaven, we rejoice this morning in the words of Scripture that we have read together. We're thankful for the opportunity to meet together, even in these hard times, to worship your name, to read your word, to hear the preaching of your word in the sense of it. And we ask our God today that as we meet around your word, that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, would come and abide with us, not only in our hearts as believers, but among us as the Church of Christ, dwelling with us, speaking to us, illuminating the Word of God, the Scriptures of Truth. And we ask our Father today that we might be spoken to out of your Word, and that we might leave this house of God different than, we, than when we came in, that we might be encouraged, that we might be emboldened to live for God, strengthened this week to live more and more unto God and less and less to the things of the world and to self. We pray our God today that you would uh, chastise if we need chastisement, that you, you would rebuke if we need rebuke. And, O oh God, that you would forgive us our sins for which of us have not sinned this past week. We ask our God that you would come today forgiving our sins and drawing us closer to our Saviour, to know him and to love him and to enjoy him in the person of the Trinity. We pray in our Saviour's name. Amen. Amen. Now, I want to deal particularly with verses 9 through to 19, and that is a section of this chapter that deals with God's response to a broken or rebellious creation but let me just back up a little bit and speak to you for a moment about verses 1 through to 8. And in that section of the chapter, Adam and Eve, his wife, she's not called Eve until the latter part of the chapter. If I use the word Eve, it is uh, speaking of her after the, the fall because she's called Eve as a symbol of Adam's acceptance of the gospel. She's the mother of the living one. And by naming her Eve, Adam has recognized that life will come again, that the curse will be reversed, and that God will give life through Eve. And so we're not going to get to that section of the chapter, but just as a heads up, I want you to understand what the word Eve means. And so we refer to her as the woman, as Adam's wife, as Eve, all of the above, and whatever. But Adam and his wife have been placed in the garden. It's a perfect environment. No sin. In the middle of that garden, there are two trees. One is the tree of life. The other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of the trees have been described by God as delightful and pleasant and good to eat. All of the trees, and all of them are, Delightful to look at, pleasant to look at, and good for food. However, one tree has been assigned by God 
as forbidden. And Adam and his wife are told, you can't eat of that tree. That is a test that God will give Adam. Why did God give Adam a test? Because Adam is a human being. He is the apex, the crown of God's creation. And in Adam, we read that he was created in the image of God. And we're going to see this a little later on. He is created in the image of God. And by that, we, we understand that to mean that Adam could think. He could process information. He could reason. And he had to make choices. That's part of the definition of what it means to be human. The ability to reason and to think, to make choices. And so God put a garden, a tree in the middle of the garden and said to Adam and his wife, don't eat of that tree. Adam had to make a choice. Now Satan came into the garden in the, in the form of a serpent. Crafty, the serpent was already a crafty beast of the field, cunning. But Satan enters in and makes that craft and cunningness to, for an evil purpose. And he tempted the woman and while the woman is being tempted by the serpent, Adam is standing by. Adam is standing, listening. And we read that at the end of verse 6. Uh, she gave also to her husband who was with her. And the verbs that are used in the text indicate also that there is a plurality. Satan is not just speaking to the woman as a singular individual. He's speaking to Adam and his wife. And it is, is it not an indictment on, on the man here? and on men in general who are to lead the home? Is it not an indictment that Adam stood by in the garden and listened to every word of Satan and said nothing? He did not protect his wife. He did not protect the garden that God had given him to protect and to guard and keep. He listened to every word of temptation that the woman heard and he said nothing. He allowed the woman to be tempted. He allowed rather his wife to be tempted. Made no defense. Made no reasoning with her. Did not encourage her. Did not protect her as he ought to have. What an indictment. And so Eve was tempted, deceived. Adam was not deceived. Paul tells us in Second Timothy that Adam was not deceived. Adam went into this sin with his eyes wide open. This was an act of open rebellion in the part of Adam. And she was deceived. She took of the tree, ate of it, and gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate of the tree. Now, that brings us to verse 9. And verse, verses 1 through to 8 really deal with the history of Adam and Eve. Were we there when Adam sinned? Yes, we were in Adam. If I take an apple, like say for, for sake of talk, a, a Granny Smith or a Cox Pippin apple, and I take the seed out of that apple and I plant it, I would expect a tree to grow according to the nature of the apple that I've taken it from either a Cox Pippin or, a, or a, a Granny Smith or whatever apple you want to pick, because out of, the, out of that apple has come a seed like itself. We, beloved, were in Adam when he sinned, and all humanity, therefore, sins in Adam and with Adam. Every part of 
God's creation was affected by Adam's sin. But when we come to verse 9, I want us to see ourselves particularly in verses 9 and following and how God responded to this rebellious creation. They heard the voice, verse 9 rather, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? This is God coming to Adam. Now, why did God have to ask where Adam was? We go back to verses 5 through to 6, and we discover that Adam discovered something himself when he ate of the tree. Nothing had changed physically in the garden, but Adam knew there was a major change in his relationship to God. He knew that he was naked. Before he and his wife were naked, there was no embarrassment. But now they see embarrassment in the eyes of each other and they make themselves fig leaves, aprons or loincloths of fig leaves and they cover themselves. So they know there's something wrong. They haven't discovered what it is yet, but they know there's something wrong. There's something missing. There's a problem in the world now. That's what they know. And then, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The word walking there is a very interesting word, and it indicates uh, uh, an increasing sound. You know, if I heard you walking on the stones, I could tell if you were at that side of the building, and, and as you come closer to the door, the, the sound increases. And I can tell that you're coming closer to the door. That's the idea here. The walking, it's increasing. They heard the sound of God. It is not the voice. The authorized version says it's the voice. The word is sound in the original. God has not yet spoken. God has not yet spoken. But they hear the sound of God. They are aware. Let me, let me be clear. They are aware of the presence of God in this world. Is that not where we all are? Humanity. You look, at, you look at different aspects of humanity today and the, the vagaries of humanity and the struggles of humanity and different aspects of mental struggles and, and addictions. And, and many of these things are really men and women and young people searching for reality. They know there is something more than what they have. They're searching for something to fill, as Augustine said, that God-shaped hole in the soul. And they will try this, and they will try that, and they will try, and they go through life seeking and searching and attempting to fill a hole in their heart that only God can fill. And that's exactly, exactly where Adam and his wife are. When they hear the sound of God, God is there. Francis Schaeffer, the, the theologian philosopher, said God is there and he is not silent. God, beloved, is in this world. He's in our conscience. He has placed in us a conscience. He has placed in us a sense of the divine. And Adam knew that God was there. 
Adam knew God was there. All of his questions have not yet been answered, but he knows God is there. And what did he do? He ran. He ran from God. First of all, he made fig leaves. He, he tries this self-help. He tries this self Is that not what we see in the stores today? The self-help, the self-help section in bookstores is increasing, increasing, increasing. It's phenomenal. It is phenomenal. Beloved, the Bible, right back to as far as Genesis chapter 3, is as up-to-date as today. And Adam has tried his self-help. The aprons or the loincloths of fig leaves have not worked, and he is now discovering that all the trees in the Garden of Eden cannot help him. He can hide behind anything. The fig leaves, the trees, the bushes. But they can't help him because he knows the sound of God. He knows God is there. And wherever Adam runs, God is there. And God comes in verse 9. The Lord God called. Now God is speaking. You see, you see the difference? The sound of God, the, 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 the um, consciousness of his presence has already disturbed Adam and his wife. Just the consciousness of his presence. God has not yet spoken, but he's conscious that God exists. And now God is going to speak. Now God is going to call. And this brings us to what we want to see today And I want us to notice four different aspects of this chapter. Uh, We may not get to them all today, but we will attempt to make our way through. The first point I want you to notice is God's penetrating pursuit. God's penetrating pursuit. The second point I want us to, to see is a declaration of defeat. God will answer Satan. Up until this point... God has been silent. Is it not remarkable that while Satan was doing his evil work and tempting Adam and his wife, God has not spoken. And now when God speaks, Satan is silent. And so we're going to see, first of all, the penetrating pursuit. We're going to see a declaration of defeat or destruction. We're going to see a glorious promise in the gospel. God is going to send one who will destroy Satan, who will crush the head of the serpent, and who will bring life and immortality to light in the gospel. And then we'll see, lastly, an alarming announcement where God places on Adam and his wife, he curses the earth for their sake. And we're going to see that sanctification then, this struggles and sufferings of life, have a sanctifying process in the life of a believer as we go through this world. Let's look, first of all, at God's penetrating pursuit. God's penetrating pursuit. Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden. We have seen this. In, chapter, in verse 9, we read that God called the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, just very generally, I want us to notice that God is interested in humanity. 
God is interested in humanity. He has come to save humanity. He did not come to save the angels. He has not asked Satan, where are you? Satan, as we shall see in a moment, has no conscience against God. He, is, he has no regrets for what he has done. Adam, on the other hand, has a conscience. He knows he has sinned and God pursues him because God is interested in humanity. If you're here today and you know the gospel and you've refused the gospel or you're perhaps here today and you've never heard the gospel, I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's word that God is interested in humanity. He came to save. He came to seek and to save. But not only is he interested in humanity in general, remember what John 3 verse 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But God is interested also in individuals. And as you go down this passage, you discover that God not only speaks to Adam, he is the primary character here, Adam, but God speaks to his wife. God speaks to his wife. God speaks to all the individuals mentioned in this story and present in the Garden of Eden. And God is here today, as we prayed, in this church, in the power of his Holy Spirit. He dwells amongst us and he speaks to each individual. I don't know you. I have never met you. But I know that God is interested in humanity. And I know that God speaks to individuals. And I know also, if you're a child here today, young person, I know that God speaks to children. I was saved in 1979 as a child of seven years old. God speaks to children. And it can work on your heart. You might not know much. You might not be able to connect a lot of the dots of theology. But you know and recognize the speaking power of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Calling you to himself. Giving you a recognition that you're a sinner before God. And that you need a savior. Those two things. I'm a sinner before God. I need a Savior, and Christ has come to be my Savior. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And that's what he comes to tell Adam and Eve. That's what he comes to tell Adam and Eve. And he's interested. But all, not only is God interested, but God has initiative. It is surprising to me, as I read this passage, that Adam ran from God. Adam hid from God. And we would think, if we were there, you know, we speak so knowledgeable so often and, and uh, bold, if we were there, we wouldn't run from God. We would run to God. Right? But that's not what we do. We run from God. And Adam is seeking to get further from God because he doesn't know how to fix the problem. There's an issue. 
what does God do? God seeks man. God seeks Adam. Man doesn't seek God. God seeks man. And God, it is God's initiative to save humanity. It is God's initiative to bring salvation to humanity. And so we come to this, this, this phrase, this question, where are you? Have you ever thought of the tone in which that question was asked, where are you? How did God ask that question? Did God come in with the sense of despair? Adam, where in the world are you? What have you done? Did he come into the garden with a sense of vengeance to destroy Adam? Where are you, Adam? Did he come into the, gar- to the garden with, for, for information? Adam, where are you? I don't know where you are. I'm looking for you. No, God knew everything. God knew exactly where Adam was. And God did not come into the garden with vengeance. Nor did God come into the garden as a father would chasten a son. Adam is now a rebellious creation. He's a rebellious sinner. God came in with a sense of inviting, with a, with a tone of invitation to Adam. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? And he's going to make Adam think. He's going to make Adam think because God's words in this question are intentional. You see the, the, the phrase, the wording of the Bible? Uh, but the Lord God called unto Adam and said, and said, God called, and this is what he said. You know the New Testament verse, he's come to seek and to save. When God comes, he comes with intention. And he's come seeking Adam. And he's come to save Adam. And he's come to seek and to save. And so there's intention with Adam, with with God, in calling and saying, where are you? Not only is there intention, there's instruction in it. And this is what we, we mentioned, we referenced earlier. Where are you is is intended, and this is why I call it a penetrating pursuit. Because God is pursuing Adam, and God is going to penetrate Adam's heart. He's going to seek Adam. But he has to get Adam to think. He has to get Adam to reason through the process. That will save him. And that will bring him to salvation. And so God's words, where are you, are intended to make Adam think. Remember I said he was made in the image of God. He was created to think. Beloved, you are created to think. God does not just come down and zap you, if I can use familiar and modern terminology, just to zap you and, and take you into glory. He comes down and he brings preachers and teachers, Sunday school teachers and youth workers. And he makes you reason 
Is this not what the prophet said, Isaiah? Come now, let us reason together. You have a problem with God? Bring it to God. If you have a problem with how God works in this world, bring it to God. Reason through. Ask God why. Come to God's word and he will tell you why. This is how we reason through the process. We come to God and we reason with him. Because God is intending to make us think. To process where we are. How we got here. And how we're going to correct where we are. And so God comes with intention. Remember the same is, is true. You see right through the Bible how God is making people think. Remember in, in Jacob, when Jacob was wrestling with the angel, God uh, said to him, what is your name? Did God forget Jacob's name? No. But he wants Jacob to think. What is my name? What's the meaning of it? Remember Paul or Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and, and he, he is going there to kill the Christians? And God stops him and God says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul stops. I'm not persecuting and he starts to think. You see? And this is what God would do this morning with you. He would cause you to think. And very often as we, as we go through the process of salvation, God has caused us to think. And some people are thinking for years. Some people come like that. They've thought it through. And the Holy Spirit comes and enlightens them and illumines their mind. But the point is, beloved, the point is, you must think where you are with God today. You must know and be able to argue your case before God. Argue your case before God. I'm here. And here's why I'm here. In fact, at the end of the age, when we meet God, in John chapter, in 1 John chapter 2, I believe it is, we're told the, the wording of, of John is that we will not be speechless. That we will not be speechless before him in the end. Beloved, when I stand before God in the end of the age, and God asks me, where are you? I don't want to be speechless depending on my own ability, my own good works, my own merits. I want to be able to point to Christ. And rest in Christ. So God comes with intention. But he not only comes with intention and with instruction. He comes also with patience. Patience. And maybe you're here this morning and you've been here before. Or you've heard the gospel before. And brother there's a wasp if you just want to push it on out. It's right now, it's okay. I just see it hovering around people's heads and I've saved you all from a bee sting. <clears throat> God comes with patience. 
patience. Perhaps you've already heard the gospel as a child and you still don't know God. You've still not bowed the knee to the reality and lordship of Jesus Christ. You've held out because you don't want to give up your own lordship. You don't want to submit yourself to Christ and to live for him. And God all this time has been patient with you. He has reasoned with you. And see how he does it with Adam in the garden while Adam is running from God? Running from God. Many times we hear in people's testimonies how they were running from God. They were trying this and they were trying that. And all along they knew deep down in their heart of hearts that it was God reasoning with them. That it was God pursuing them until they could run no more. You go to the end of the rope And God pursues Adam here with patience. And as Adam runs from God and God goes and God looks at him through the trees. And God says to Adam through the trees, and I have this image in my mind of God looking, eyeballing Adam in the trees. And as he eyeballs Adam through the leaves of the trees, he says, Adam, where are you? Where are you? But God is not finished with Adam because Adam is not finished running. And Adam says, I heard, verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? You see, God is reasoning with him. God is drawing him in. Who told you you were naked? How did you know you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man says, I have. <laughs> did I? <laughs> no, I didn't. If he had said, Lord, I have, I'm sorry. But he didn't do that. Not only did he not defend his wife and protect his wife against Satan, but now he's blaming his wife. He's blaming her, the woman. And by indirectly, he's blaming God also, the woman whom you give to be with me. And now Adam is starting to deflect off himself the blame that rests squarely upon him. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. How often we, rather than, than, than take responsibility ourselves for our sins, we deflect and we blame everything and everybody, even the person closest to us. It is shocking. It is shocking how Sin blinds us to the point where we can blame the person closest to us rather than, our, than take responsibility ourselves. 
We will blame everybody and anybody. We will throw anybody under the bus to save our own skin. And you thought that was a modern phenomenon. Here we have it right in Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of time. Beloved, we are no different than Adam, and Adam was no different than us. And so God pursues him. God keeps pursuing him. I want you to see that. Despite the blame game, God is still pursuing Adam. Until Adam will come to an understanding of the gospel. The second point I want us to see is the declaration of defeat. The declaration of defeat. While Adam should have held his hands up and said, Lord, I did it myself. I ate of the tree. It's my fault. I should have protected my wife. I should have protected the garden, but I didn't. I have failed. God keeps pursuing Adam. And then God comes with this, with this great declaration of defeat and destruction to Satan. Verse 15, verses 14 and 15. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. It shall bruise your head and you shall crush his heel. This, beloved, is the first gospel promise in the Bible. And it was given to Satan. Adam and Eve are there. They're hearing this. I want you to get the picture. The, 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 this de declaration of destruction was given to Satan. It was declaring to Satan that God was going to crush him. And in that declaration to crush Satan, where God is speaking to Satan, Adam and Eve are listening. And they hear, they hear that God is going to destroy their arch enemy, that God is going to reverse the curse. That God is going to kill death itself. And out of that promise, from the seed of the woman will come one who will crush the serpent, who will crush Satan. Adam gets the promise of the gospel. What a glorious, what a glorious promise it is. Because salvation at the beginning here, as it is revealed, salvation is the destruction of death, right? If death is destroyed, then life, as Paul tells us, life and immortality are brought to light again in the gospel. And that's what we read in Genesis chapter 3. This destruction, and, and, and it, is, it is absolute, and I want us to say absolute, in capital letters, bold, capital, underlined, absolute destruction, because Satan is told he will lick the dust. That little phrase, lick the dust, is a phrase that speaks of absolute destruction, of absolute humiliation. We use it today. Often, if, uh, and the enemy will lick the dust. It's a biblical phrase used throughout Scripture. The enemy will lick the dust. And so there's this declaration of destruction. And out of this declaration of destruction comes also the glorious promise of a Savior. 
the Savior who will come, the Savior who will crush the head of the serpent, and the image that is given is of one who is coming, who is human, he's of the seed of the woman, he will come and he will put his heel on the head of the serpent. I want you to get that image. He will put his heel on the head of the serpent and he will crush that serpent, killing the serpent, destroying the serpent. Absolute destruction. No life for the serpent, but death in outer darkness. Now Christ, you see, the one who will come and crush the head of the serpent will be injured in the heel, right? And so Christ will suffer. The one who will come will suffer. But it will not be a fatal blow. That's the point. It will not be a fatal blow. He will recover from that suffering, from that injury, if you like. And so Christ on the cross went into the territory of Satan. He went into death itself, into the darkness of death, and he came out victorious. The third day he rose again from the dead. Satan didn't rise. Satan is destroyed. Satan is defeated. The sting has been removed from death and the grave. And Christ has risen. That's why we're here today on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, celebrating not just Christ and celebrating not just the gospel and celebrating not just Christianity and not just Protestant Christianity. We're here to celebrate the risen Savior. The risen Savior. We're here because we have a reason to live. We're here because we have a purpose to live in this life. And God, in the last section of this chapter, or of this section rather, verses 16 to 19, God then turns his guns, if you like, on Adam and his wife. And he says, you're going to suffer and you're going to suffer. The woman is going to suffer in childbearing. The man is going to suffer in his work. By the sweat of his face, he's going, to, he's going to eat bread by the sweat of his face. This life, beloved, is a life of suffering. That's where we're at. But it is not just because Adam sinned. It is that. But I want us to see that God introduced this suffering, cursed the earth for our sake or because of us. So suffering has a sanctifying process. And that's the point that God is making to Adam and Eve at the end of this section. Suffering has a sanctifying process. And this is what we read in Romans chapter 8. That the whole earth is groaning. And in this groaning world in which we live, and in this world of suffering in which we traverse daily, and, and our minds are overwhelmed at times by the suffering of the world, Yet does that suffering not enable us to lift our heads up, to lift our hearts up to the one who will redeem not just the soul, but in the end will redeem the body out of this suffering? Does this suffering not make us long for that time when we will have no more suffering in another world? Does this suffering not cause us to rest on Christ, to find grace, as Paul says, grace in time of need and sufficient grace in times of when suffering is particularly acute. 
Beloved, there is a sanctifying process in suffering. And this is where God leaves Adam in the garden at the end of this section in suffering. And Adam believes. Adam believes. And he calls his wife's name Eve, the mother of the living. Beloved, I trust as we've taken a whirlwind view of this passage, and we've seen something of the reality of life right at the beginning in the garden, but also that we've seen something of the nature of humanity. No matter where you go in the world, no matter where you go, humanity is the same. Humanity is the same, and it is the task of the evangelist. It is the task of the, of the preacher and the teacher to ask that same question to every individual as we, as we evangelize. Where are you? And then to enable them to process where they are. That's the task of the evangelist. Because we all know we're lost. But we often don't know how we got there or the way back from being lost. And so it is, often, it is the task of, of the evangelist and the preacher to try to enable people to process how they got to where they are. Where are you? Let me help you reason through where you are. And let me show you one who can recover you from where you are and bring you the gospel and bring you light, life, and immortality. Because that's what we have in the gospel, life with no death, or life with no ability to die, life and immortality in the gospel. I trust today that the Lord will bless you as we process through the word of God, and that we might be encouraged to know that God has a remedy for our sins, that he is grace for us in our sufferings, and that all of this that we, that we are working through in this world is part of the sovereign purpose of God. Let's bow in prayer, and then I'll hand over to our brother. Father, we're thankful this morning for your word. Bless it, we pray it to our hearts. We pray in our Savior's name. Amen.